0: So, what are you going to do now? You going to look for something else in real estate? Nobody's hiring now. The market's terrible. This could have been a huge mistake. Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now, in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. This week, friend of the show and friend in general, Taylor Pearson, drops by the show to talk about his new book. This is pretty exciting. If you're not familiar with Taylor's excellent blog, it's at taylorpearson.me. The new books called The End of Jobs. This week we're going to talk about the books that are defining this exciting opportunity that people have in their working lives and why the jobs that were once considered the safest are no longer so. The links to Taylor's book and all the stuff mentioned on the show you can find at the blog tropicalmba.com slash end of jobs. All right, I'm going to tell you what the 4-Hour Workweek whispered to me when I read it and why, even though it's very close to the 80-20 principle and other books that existed before it, it needed to exist for me and for a lot of others. And here's what it was. It said... Not explicitly, but it whispered, like you've mentioned in the past. You can become wealthy and live location independently at the same time. You don't have to do one a little bit and then do the other and trade it back and forth. But you can just go out, live in Mexico, live in Japan, travel around the world, check into some hostels, check into some five stars. And eventually, if you stick at it, you will become wealthy. That's a possibility that I saw in that book. And that's why that book needed to exist for me. So now let me ask you, why does your book need to exist? What do you feel like it whispers to its readers?
1: So I think the discussion we've been having or that's been going on around entrepreneurship for the last five, ten years, kind of in the blogosphere, is everyone's selling this message of it's risky, but it's worth it. You know, you take a lot more risk as an entrepreneur, but, you know, follow your dreams and travel the world and you can do more creative work. It's a
0: lot of like the Nike poster stuff, like you only live once and if you don't do it, can you live with yourself? And a lot of people
1: might reason that, yeah, I can live with myself. I'll be fine. Thanks. (laughs) I'm making the argument that even if that's not what you want, even if what you want is the classic Americana 1950s dream, white picket house in the suburbs of Phoenix, and you want to raise two kids and live a quiet life, it's still a smarter choice. That the nature of the economy today and what's going on is that sticking your head down in a job for 40 years is just not a good trade anymore. I kind of had this conversation while I was in the midst of writing a book with an old friend of mine who was at the time like starting to get into his law career, had finished law school, and kind of had this moment of conversation. He looks at me and he's like, man, look, I just picked the safer choice. Right. And I kind of wanted to like grab him and shake him. And I couldn't really articulate why that was not true at the time. But I sort of,
0: (laughs) I was like, oh, I got to write this book. this whole book came from you wanting to tell your friend that he's an idiot.
1: Right. This contention that you can stay on this trajectory, which a lot of us have been sold, because it has been true, right? Like, you know, not yeah, to, yeah. to say people are unintelligent for thinking a job is a smart, safe choice. Well, or not like, to
0: say that things can't work out well, regardless of the trend.
1: Right. But the, the trends are overwhelmingly what has been true from post-World War II until 2000, when we saw I think, jobs were growing 2.4x the time the population, there was more and more opportunities in jobs, are not true in the 21st century that jobs have now, there's a Kleiner Perkins report that came out, jobs have gone down 1.7x Compared to population growth in the last 15 years. And like that's accelerating and that's continuing and it's not changing.
0: They've gone down 1.7x.
1: So for every new individual, every new person born, every new human, there's 1.7 times less jobs. The jobs are decreasing relative to population growth.
0: I see. Would it be fair to say then another way to say your book is like when your guidance counselor or parents sit you down and say... Hey, Taylor, you're a smart guy. You know what you should do? Invest in a good university, become a lawyer, become an executive, become a doctor, become an accountant, become an engineer. Is what you're saying is if they knew better, they wouldn't give that advice?
1: So what I'm saying is, yeah, they're giving a bunch of advice based on their life experience, which for most people was, right, it's the second half of the 20th century. That all these statistics about, you know, how a university degree is worth a million dollars over the course of your career and all this narrative around jobs is based upon a historical data set. Right. That's no longer true. So I just finished the star principle from Richard Koch. I actually interviewed Perry Marshall for the book, and this was one of the things we were talking about, but kind of the primacy of market. And if you look at backing a business, if you have the choice between a great team, a great product in a bad market, or a mediocre team and a mediocre product in a great market, you always take the great market. Market is far more important than most people realize. You know, this is something Mark Andreessen talks about, you know, Richard Koch talks about it, Perry Marshall's talking about it. That's kind of one of these conclusions all these guys have reached, that being in a good market is a lot better than being smart. Like if you were investing in real estate in 2004, you'd made money by 2007, not because you were smart, but because, you know, that was the real estate bubble, the market was booming. And the same is true of, you know, if you got a job in 1948, the market was booming. You know, we were in this post-World War II boom that Warren Buffett has said, Like, why was he so successful? He was successful because the economy was booming. And if you look at his investing track record, his early track record is much more impressive than his more recent track record. That the job market from, you know, 1948 for the rest of the 20th century was booming. And that's not the case anymore. The market that's booming now is the entrepreneurial market. That's what Ron Davidson was on about. And that's what Seth's on about with Lynchpin, And that's what the book dives into. Let me
0: reframe up what we mean by job. Because oftentimes it's presented as a dichotomy. Like you either have a job or you become an entrepreneur. And I don't see it like that. What I see as jobs are an obscuring layer between you and your entrepreneurial life. So they're just kind of like cloudy glasses. A job obscures your vision of your means of production, of how you make value, how you get money in the world. The example we see on the show all the time is the dentist who gets into the dental game because they have a sense that there's a lot of money there. But there's an, this obscuring layer, which is, you know, I kind of have an office. I have kind of a dentist. And the money piles up in the bank account over the years. But when they become 50, and if they don't want to clean teeth anymore and want to have some freedom from that job, they have to learn how to become an investor. They do know how to become an entrepreneur. But the punchline, of course, is that that's what they were all along. And because they waited until they were 50 to do anything about it, sometimes they make some bad decisions.
1: And I guess the question is kind of the reason corporations exist, right, is the corporation has to make money, right? It, so it is profitable. There is value being created. It's not clear who's creating that value. So inevitably, a very few people in the corporation are creating this value. And like most of the corporation is creating no value. They don't know that or they don't realize that because they still get a paycheck, right? Right. Like you still get a paycheck even if somehow it's possible to kind of calculate what value out of the corporation is in that negative. Like until they figure that out somehow or until they guess that's the case and you get fired, someone still gets a paycheck. So if you are one of those people that is creating the value and even if you're not one of those people that's creating the value, you're going to have to figure out how to become one Right. because the mechanisms to detect who's creating that value are getting better and better. doing this
0: the other day and this is a situation that people that follow the job career life path find themselves in let's assume you make a really good salary for 20 years in fact let's make it a really good case scenario because that's the game we're playing two hundred thousand dollars a year if you're paying a tax rate say california europe and you manage to stay away from disease death dismemberment expensive vacations to mexico montessori schools for your kids lexus SUVs, all these types of things. If you could stay away from the trappings of the executive lifestyle, which is the hardest part about making money as an executive, by the way. I mean, because everybody wants to go to Paris or send their kids to the best school. I mean, if you send one of your children to Stanford, you're going to be spending more than you can save in a whole year's worth of sitting on the highways going to your executive job. I did the math, and this is an individual scenario for me, after taxes, after savings, being a very smart person, no medical emergency, 20 years gives you less than a million dollars. By my calculation, $820,000. Now, you did a great job. You pretty much beat all the odds. You got an insane salary, and you sustained it for 20 years, which is like two lifetimes. Okay? You're 50 years old. You did everything right. Now, what do you do? If you live 30 more years, you'd only have like $26,000 a year to live off of. This is assuming you don't own properties and you're paying property tax on or other ways people are getting money from you.
1: Very rosy picture.
0: Very rosy, yet extremely challenging. And you end up where you're suggesting we start, which is, okay, well, I got to be an entrepreneur now. And think about the risks that you're facing at that level of the game. Now, all of a sudden, you have to completely relearn a skill set. You have to face down prospects like, well, am I going to risk half of the money with an apartment complex or with a real estate play that might tie up a lot of cash, might expose me to legal risk, and then say, well, if I live 30 more years, I only got 14 grand a year to live off of. You know, what are the options for somebody who's taken this path?
1: I actually talked to two people when I was researching the book that were in a very similar scenario. One was at the time 70. And so the option they basically took was keep working. This seems
0: to me like the most universal option.
1: Yes. so Keep you- cracking. You're 50, you got your 100 grand in the bank, didn't really see it was going to play out this way, but you realize, you know, assuming the market keeps going up, and like we're building so many rosy assumptions in here, but assuming everything keeps going well, you work another 20 years, your industry is stable, and you can keep earning $200,000 a year for a 40 year period, which is. Certainly sure. impressive. The Faith. cruddy thing
0: about it, by the way, and it's just the most fundamental thing here, and now I'm getting back to the blogosphere stuff that we derided at the beginning of the show, which is you're working a job for 50 years. I worked one for five and I about shot my face off. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe I just have a different personality than most people. But I mean, imagine the kind of emotional toil because a lot of people say, you know, starting a business isn't safe, Taylor. It's code for, I don't want to do that because it, it seems like a bunch of work. And they mean like emotional labor. Right. I don't want to be a leader.
1: I'll work 80 hours a week in the corner and you know like file papers and yeah. yada, but... Go out and like take risks in the emotional sense.
0: But you are taking emotional risks by doing what other people tell you to do for 30 years as well. Or having to constantly position what you want to do in the context of what's... Right. Some, this is real emotional labor. Right. <laughs> the type that executives specialize in. And if you can endure that, you most certainly can find a thousand true fans and serve your customers and figure out a way to generate income in the way that is more suitable to you.
1: Option A is you keep on working. The assumption built into that option and going back to the two I talked to are the person that confronted this option with 70 now faced this option in you know the 1990s. Like Things were still going fairly well for the job market and it was very reasonable to expect they could kind of continue those earnings for 20 years. Talk to someone on the same career track who basically faced this question two years ago and they looked at what was going on with the job market and they go, there's no way I'm going to be able to sustain these earnings for the next 20 years. Like my industry is not going to support this. Like it is changing too fast. Again, I have to get, go relearn a new skill set. I am going to have to go do something totally different. And the conclusion she raised is, well, if I got to go learn a new skill set and do something totally different, I should pick an entrepreneurial skill set and start a business because I can see the trajectory of that. That's getting more valuable.
0: Okay, so let's like backpedal just a little bit to talk about your book.
1: So the story behind the book is mostly your fault. We were sitting at breakfast after DC Bangkok, which is the conference you host in October in Bangkok. We were kind of having this conversation around how is this possible? Like we all see this as possible. You know, we just went to this conference. Everyone has these businesses, you know, some of the books that are kind of dancing around this. Seth Godin with Lynchpin, Ron Davison with The Fourth Economy. Nassim Taleb, I think is kind of abstractly dancing around this, but like the changing appearances of risk. Yeah, in society, Chris it's funny Anderson that, it's, with the long tail.
0: It's funny that you mention Lynchpin. I think that's interesting because Davidson's book kind of ends abruptly. In which he says, for the vast majority of the 20th century, we plugged ourselves into corporations. And, you know, that worked for so many people. And that's why we inherited this script. But because of the democratization of the means of production, the fact that I can basically start a value factory from my own desk now and I can distribute it, I can fund it. I mean, we were talking 10 years ago. Let me tell a story. Are you ready to have an old man story time? Story time. All right. 10 years ago, I gave away 33% equity for information. And you know what that information was? Who could make my furniture? That information was worth 33% of a company. Nowadays, you can jump online and click, click, click. Nowadays, I'd, I'd shudder to think what the 33% would cost me. Luckily, we rearranged the partnership before that ever came to a head. You know, there's a little maximum business that says never give equity for something you could pay cash for. The truth is, though, if you think back 10 years ago, let's imagine our scenario of the executive who's thinking about starting a product business but doesn't know any suppliers in China who can build their widget for them. Okay, so let's assume they can get three weeks off of work to travel to China. Plane ticket's gonna cost them a couple grand. They're gonna need to get a translator. They're gonna need to build a pre-prototype to bring over there to show to the suppliers. They're gonna need to travel all around China and probably have 15 to 20 terrible samples made by suppliers. All of this running around, identifying who you can work with, could cost you 30 grand easily. You're taking vacation from work. Who knows what that's costing you? And this person is saving 40 grand a year. You're basically risking, you're mortgaging a year of your life to start a product business over in China. The second thing is, we're not even talking about ordering the stock yet. And we don't even know if people want what you got. So this is just 10 years ago, starting a product
1: business. Or the fact that you're communicating with these people via fax, right? Like Skype was, what, 2004? Yeah. So like, that was like just the dawn of the Skype era. we were like still on the tail end of like faxing. No question, I mean, I,
0: I faxed manufacturing instructions that were hand drawn. These are connections that are not easily made. Like if you know somebody on the other side of the world who can make a multi-hundred dollar product for you in the volume of one thousands on the other end of a fax machine and a pencil drawing, that information is worth a lot of money.
1: But people weren't giving it away. Exactly. <laughs> Fast forward. <laughs> Who's your supplier? Not tell it.
0: Exactly. This just shows the access, I guess, you know, how much things have just changed in 10 years. When you look at the linchpin book, so just to take it back to Seth Godin then, essentially what he's saying is like, look, the dominant organizational unit in the 20th century was the corporation. That's how we created exchange value. Now, Davison leads us with the hanger. In the 21st century, it's going to be the self well, what does that look like? I guess it looks a little bit like what Seth is describing in Lynchpin. So can you kind of sketch out what the idea is there?
1: So kind of the idea that Seth puts forward in Lynchpin that I build on some is this notion that there are, you know, kind of two types of individuals, the linchpin and, you know, the cog or the non-linchpin. But there are people who can come in and create and connect and they have their hands on the value mechanism. They are the ones building the systems. Yeah they're making something that is not already there and they're ones that are operating the systems and that everyone operating the system, there is either a machine that will operate it for approaching free or there is you know this growing network of highly educated, highly motivated people in other countries around the world who live in places where cost of living is much lower and they will take over those kinds of positions that the only work that's really remaining is this like creating, connecting, and building systems. I want to
0: say something that's inside baseball too because you've been hanging around for quite some time. This is the, only the second time I've ever done a- a book promotion podcast. I generally have a policy against it, and I've only violated it twice. The first for ignorance. I won't tell the story of that. The second time for nepotism and and love, I guess. But I'd probably be talking to you anyway, so I'm happy to violate my policy.
1: We started this conversation I guess like two years ago. I've just been turning it into a book.
0: (laughs) What do you hope that people get from it? I mean, are you going to be able to hand this to your stubborn buddy? Is he going to read it and say, yeah, Taylor was right all along? Or do you think it's going to be for people like me that are farther along the journey to kind of make sense of the path that I'm on. What's your hope for the impact?
1: You know, I've been talking about, I've been writing about this stuff on my site for a while. It's just been really interesting to see some friends I have from very traditional backgrounds start to change. You know, One of our friends was in town last week who left his safe corporate job a year ago because he came to you know much the same conclusion. So I certainly want those kinds of individuals and people who are basically doing things they don't necessarily want to be doing and things they're not excited about doing because they feel like it's safe or smart to take a different frame and a different perspective on that. Yeah. And then I think for people that are also along the path that just kind of want to understand better what the mechanisms are. And I think also see what some of the new opportunities are going to be like, what are these trends? So who's the best blogger in the world right now? (laughs) Vincat. Is anybody writing
0: good business books anymore?
1: I've been on a Richard Koch tear lately. I've gone yeah. to like two or three of his. He's quite good.
0: Taylor, you are <laughs> our hope and our salvation. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Taylor's too modest to say that he's one of the best bloggers out there, so I'll say it for him. Check out his excellent writings on philosophy, business, and business process, including a case study of how he grew one of our e-commerce sites. I mean, that site is like a freight train growing 100% year over year. So check out his blog, taylorpearson.me. And if you're interested in Taylor's book, new book, it's coming out in a few weeks, The End of Jobs, plus all the other links to the books we've mentioned in this show, check out this blog post at tropicalmba.com slash end of jobs.